Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Believe in the Jaguars right here on the Believe Podcast Network. My name is Phil Smith, a.k.a. Phil the Filipino. I am one of your co-hosts, and your other co-host, of course, joining me this week is James Johnson, managing editor of the Jaguars Wire over on USA Today. And Jay, it is uh, good to see you, of course, as always. But as we kind of expected, you know, the Tennessee Titans responded accordingly after a disappointing loss to the New York Jets, they came into TIAA Bankfield and, you know, really kind of laid the hammer down. Even though it was competitive early, it did end up being a little lopsided in the end, and we're going to discuss all of that. But first and foremost, how are you doing here today, Jay? Yeah, man, I'm good, man. Just hanging in there as, as much as you can as a Jaguars journalist, right? <laughs> Just rolling with the punches. So, yeah, I'm good, man. As you said, man, a uh, little bit of a lopsided game there. The team, you know, continues not to put together a whole game, which is something you expect from a, um, a young team. And uh, like you said, I mean, I think we all had them down for a loss, but I don't think I had them down for that big of a loss uh, with Julio out. So, I mean, like, you know, like it could have, to me, it could have been closer with Julio out, with the Jaguars kind of having the strength against the run game, but that was not how it ended up. Uh, and nonetheless, we're going to talk about that and review it in a few minutes. But um, as always, we appreciate everybody for tuning in, rating, commenting, subscribing, all of that good stuff. And uh, yeah, we, we ask that you continue to stick with us throughout this journey uh, because it looks like it's going to get going to be a long one, especially after every press conference we see with Urban Meyer. He's just making it even worse. So, <laughs> Yeah, and we're going to discuss Urban Meyer here as far as you know, maybe what we think his future holds here in Jacksonville. It's just, if they don't win one of these next couple of games here, Jay, we're going to have a tough time winning any of them down the stretch, and we're going to break all of that down. But yeah, as Jay said, you know, we thank you guys all so much for continuing to support the show. We truly could not do this without you. If you are listening on Apple Podcast or your Apple device, make sure you go and leave us a five-star review if you're enjoying the show. It's one of the best ways you can support the podcast. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and tune in. Of course, you can find us at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can find the show on Twitter at Believe in Jags Pod. You can find myself at Phil the Filipino, F-I-L-I-P-I-N-O. And Jay is over at SportsGrind underscore Dawn. And make sure you keep up with the JaguarsWire.USAToday.com for all of your up-to-date Jacksonville Jaguar news. And of course, as always, we have to give a shout out to our sponsor here this week, Bet Online, because football is back and better than ever, and all eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back on for another season. As always, Bet Online is your number one spot for all pro and college football action this season. It's got a new updated site and interface. It's got even more odds, props, contests. Bet Online continues to be the number one source for everything football. 
So head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Don't forget to use our promo code BELIEVE, that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus from football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games. Don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet online where the game starts. All right, everybody. So with the housekeeping out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the game. The Jacksonville Jaguars and the Tennessee Titans. The Jags, of course, fall to Tennessee 37 to 19. And as we mentioned before, you know, that score is uh, that's a pretty wide margin to lose by. But it certainly didn't feel like that at certain points of the game. I mean, and Jay, to give you an idea, Eric and I were kind of on the verge of saying, all right, let's get out of here if they score again. I think at that time it was 31 to 19, something along those lines. And then they're in position to score. And of course, you know, the Carlos Hyde thing happens and all of that is history. And then we end up leaving the game. But there were, again, portions of this game that looked really, really good. And of course, looking at the offensive side, we'll look first at Trevor Lawrence. 23 of 33, 273 yards, one touchdown, one interception. James Robinson continuing to show that he is one of the best running backs in the league, yet still finishes with under 20 carries. He had 18 carries, 149 yards, and a touchdown, 8.3 yards a carry. That is just absolutely insane. And Jay, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about their hesitancy or refusal to give him the ball in the red zone. We're definitely going to talk about that. Dan Arnold, six catches, 64 yards, although he did have that fumble to start off the game. That just was like, well, here we go. We're a minute into this thing, and we're already trailing. And then, uh, you know, as far as the other receivers, not really a whole lot of standouts. Tavon Austin had five catches. Jamal Agnew, six catches. I think the most surprising thing, Jay, is that LaVisca and Marvin Jones had two catches combined. And LaVisca Chenault had one of the, you know, bigger plays of the entire game and only got three targets. So we're expecting him to, of course, be a bigger part in this offense. We're telling all of our guests, hey, look out for LaVisca, and then they don't give him the ball. So who knows what the heck is going on. But Jay, we'll start on the offensive side of the football. What did you see and what needs to be corrected? Yeah, I mean, as you said, another game. I mean, the the biggest standout, and I haven't gotten to go back and look at the, the game in its entirety, but the biggest standout, I mean, continues to be, as you said, James Robinson under 20 carries, you know, and by comparison's sake, you go to the other side of the ball, you look at the other team, right? And I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, they're hearing 29 carries. Now, look, you, you don't have to feed your running back the ball almost 30 times necessarily every game. But, you know, it, what I'm saying here is it's clear that the Titans understand who their best weapon is on the field, uh, especially with their lack of weapons at the receiving core or, you know, at least with they were without Julio Jones. A.J. Brown came out to say, I think after the game, if I'm not mistaken, he was on a pitch count. He's coming off fresh off of a hamstring injury. And he was kind of limited in terms of his statistics. If you look at it, he only had, because I got him on my fantasy roster, he only had three catches for 38 yards. Uh, so thanks for not helping me out there, A.J. Brown. But I'm just joking there. Um, he, he's a heck of a receiver. I know we don't like to praise the Titans too much, but we'll gladly take him over on this end. Uh, and that, that speaks volumes about what kind of a receiver he is and Julio, but the receiving core was limited clearly. And they understand over there, 
Mike Vrabel and company understand over there when to lean on their go-to guy, their running back, and how to manage his load just based off of what they have at the time. And the Jaguars have yet to figure that out. They're still figuring that out. And that's not to say Daryl Bell necessarily had a terrible game of play calling. But at the same time, we can't keep having these games. You know, we're five weeks into this where James Robinson doesn't get the ball at least 20 times, especially with the yard per carry average he had. Tennessee wasn't stopping him and I think was getting in the way of that. And, and Tennessee has never been good against him, if I can recall, because in his first game against Tennessee, he ran all over him in that, that week two game from last year. I can't remember what he did in the second game against him, but they're not seeing James Robinson on that side of the ball. That team isn't, at least. It might be some other team out there that's escaping my memory that might have James Robinson number, but it's not the Tennessee Titans defense. You're not it, pal, as they say <laughs> in the meme community. You're not the guy, pal. But that being said, I don't know what it is. I feel like it's, you know, Carlos Hyde and maybe Urban Meyer's connection with Carlos Hyde that's getting in the way of that. Uh, we'll see, you know, down the road. But at the same time, like, I know you signed the guy. I know the guy was with you at Ohio State. But uh, at this point, you're coaching for your job. And there, there shouldn't be, if there is, there shouldn't be any type of favoritism going on that's cutting into your best player's snap count. The guy who could ultimately save your job in the end and make things easier on your quarterback. So I would like to see, I mean, we continue to say this, like James Robinson has to get the ball 20 plus times heading forward, especially against this Miami defense that isn't good heading forward. We'll talk about that with Cat and get some details on that in the uh, later in the podcast. But yeah, man, like for me, that's the biggest takeaway. In terms of what you said about LaVisca now, Urban Meyer kind of addressed this and I'll have to go back and listen to the presser. They kind of moved him more so to the outside now with DJ Chark being out. So he wasn't like, he didn't have his normal slot duties where, you know, he he mostly is playing there. So that was kind of a change of position. Maybe the more he gets comfortable on the outside, they'll start utilizing more. But like you said, yeah, man, you can't go without utilizing LaVisca. I mean, he's arguably the best receiver on the team. You can't. That's another thing. The same thing, not utilizing their best guys um, in, in terms of their usage and their workload. And it's really, really hurting this offense. And just to kind of give you an idea for those of you that were not in attendance, I mean, my entire section, Jay, is just yelling to give James Robinson the ball. And when your fan base can clearly see what's going on, and as much as we are there to see the progression of Trevor Lawrence, even the fans know that you're going to be successful if you feed James Robinson. And the other frustrating thing about this is like, he has shown that over the last few weeks. So it's not a situation of the coaches haven't seen him do it because we know that's not the case. That's an absolutely bogus excuse if that's what they're thinking. So I don't know what in the world is going on and you know why they just refuse to do it. But something has to change. And Jay, I know you've mentioned in the past where Daryl Bevel's play calling when he had Marshawn Lynch, of course, got off to a similar start. But at what point is it like, maybe this is just how they're going to call the game and they really want to, for some reason, force Carlos Hyde to get involved in the play calling. I mean, I don't really know 
now that we're five games into this heading into the sixth, if there's any reason for us to believe that they're going to change this style of play calling. Yeah, we're at that point right now. You know, it's this week in London, if he doesn't get the ball 20 times, it's never going to happen in my opinion, at least. And, you know, that kind of goes into what Urban Meyer was saying in terms of the whole, the micromanagement thing that he mentioned that really, really made a lot of people rightfully mad. But maybe Daryl Bevel is the type to just to kind of go into the whole play with Hyde being in on the goal line situation. And first of all, I, you know what? I'll address that whole thing right now. First of all, me and you were texting about this in the thread. You know, like, I really wasn't processing the Carlos Hyde play all that much because, in all honesty, the play before where Trevor Lawrence fumbled the ball and recovered his own fumble, or what, he should have been in anyway. We shouldn't have got to that point. That's that's my point with that play is we should have – had seven points or six points at least on the board from Trevor Lawrence. We shouldn't even got to fourth and goal. First of all, for Daryl Bevel or for Urban Meyer, they even screw that up. And they got another opportunity to run it in because the refs, by my eyes, messed that one up. And Carlos Hyde is on the field. Now, look, if you get that fourth and goal opportunity, I'm with everybody. Yeah, with that being the case, with them not giving Trevor the touchdown, yeah, there's no way I got Carlos Hyde on the field over James Robinson, no, in no way, shape, or form. Now, when looking at the play call, that wouldn't have mattered because, like, two or three guys got into the backfield. I, I think Tony Boselli might have talked about this on the radio. I saw a tweet about it. Juwan Taylor missed his block, according to Boselli, and I, I would trust his word as a former offensive lineman. And that was a play, and also uh, Brandon Linder got hurt. So if I'm not mistaken, his guy might have got in the backfield too. So I guess you could argue, like, it could have been a better play call, but – at the same time, if I'm not mistaken, the Jazz scoring on the interior run on the goal line in the first quarter, too. So it's not as like... It's with not James as Robinson. <laughs> right, with James Robinson. So, I mean, maybe the team was thinking, or maybe the staff was thinking, well, they blocked it well that time. Carlos Hyde can also do the same. But at the same time, I'm not trying to find out either. I'm going to give the ball to James Robinson. You know, I'm not going to even <laughs> put that on Carlos Hyde if I'm, you know, in the coaching staff. But that being said, going back to the micromanagement thing, man, is maybe what we're seeing is that, and I think this was something we've talked about in the past, is Daryl Bell is simply an offensive coordinator that needs a head coach to step in to save him from hurting himself. He could he could put together masterful game plans, right? We've seen decent game plans out of him in Seattle. We've seen good game plans out of him for the most part here uh, in Jacksonville the last two weeks. But he is the type, it, it seems as though he may need, maybe like he even had in Seattle with Pete Carroll, he needs that guy to step in and say, hey, no, we're not running that play. That's not going to work. Let's go with something else. Or, hey, let's give you know our star running back, Marshawn Lynch or James Robinson or whoever it is, the ball more. And I'm starting to wonder, and I have to research this, maybe we'll have a Seahawks guy on to kind of give us some insight on this later down the road when we play the Seahawks. But I'm starting to wonder how much Pete Carroll had to intervene in play calling at times when Daryl Bevel was in Seattle, because it looks like that's what he needs. He needs a coach that's going to intervene when it's necessary, when it's needed and say, hey, let's get this guy in the game. Let's get this guy the ball. Let's change that play call, whatever the case may be. But the problem is, right, is that Urban Meyer is not that guy, obviously. And he's shown that unless he can become that guy over the next month or so, you know, we're in some deep trouble. But I mean, that's what 
they hired Urban Meyer to do is to make the hard calls as a head coach. That's literally a head coach's job is to micromanage and make the hard calls. I do it as a managing editor, for example, with USA Today. I make the hard calls on what stuff we're going to leave in the article and what stuff we're not because of the sources, right? You know, that's my call. Nobody's going to blame one of my writers and say, well, that shouldn't have been in the article because guess who, who edits it at the end of the day? It's me. You know, I'm the one that look at the final product. I'm the one that intervenes when something is not right and make it right. That's what Urban Meyer's job is literally to do is intervene and make the stuff that's not right or the cause that's not right on Daryl Bevel's behalf right and, you know, go from there. You know, maybe switch it up and see what happens from that point. And he's not doing that. You know, it's, it's way too much of this whole, you know, I'm learning the NFL game type stuff from him that we're in in press conferences that is not sitting well with me. Every week we're playing Alabama. Like, shut up. We don't want to hear that. Just coach the damn team. Exactly. Coach the team. Be a leader when when it's necessary, which he hasn't done all that great. You know, that's something that like they literally gave him like CEO keys to this team. And he's literally not doing all that great with that role, you know, which is sad to say the least. And, you know, maybe that goes back to what me and you and Eric and Aaron have said, like, he's not a guy that you want to be the CEO of your team anyway, in terms of football operation. And, you know, maybe shotgun seeing that now we'll see like how bad it gets with the losing and, you know, what decisions they make going forward. But Urban Meyer, it's time for Urban Meyer to start being a leader that shotgun is paying him to be. I don't know what his salary is, but shotgun is literally paying you to be the leader of this team. And you got to make the hard and smart decisions. And he's not doing it. And, you know, I'm getting definitely getting ahead of myself here, Jay. But we kind of like jokingly talked about it before we started recording here today. And we are dealing with players that, of course, nobody likes to lose. Like Trevor Lawrence, I don't think, lost five games all throughout high school and college combined. That's never happened to him. You have talented guys on the roster like a James Robinson, of course, like a LaVisca Chenault. Young guys that are going to be so important as far as the core of this team for a very, very long time. DJ Chark included, most likely, you know, depending on his contract situation. At what point do they look around at the landscape and all of a sudden Trevor Lawrence, he's at home and he is discussing with his wife that he's not happy here, you know, a couple of years later. And all of a sudden he wants out and we're back to square one again. This is stuff that you may say to yourself, we're way, way away from that. But this is where it starts is in instances like this where the team continues to lose where you're in the news for the wrong reasons. That's why players leave for places like a Pittsburgh, a Baltimore, a New England, situations like that, because organizations elsewhere don't know how to properly run. And Jacksonville, even when they were good, even in 2017, has always had some sort of dysfunction for a better part of the last decade. And eventually, that's going to catch up to you if Shad Khan doesn't make the correct decisions. Yes, we're only five games in, but given that this is Urban Meyer and we know about his past, these are discussions that we're going to have to start having. And I think, Jay, we've seen the fan base start to have as well. I, I can't remember who said it. I think it was Jordan DeLugo who said, there's not necessarily a point to fire Urban right now, and that's maybe the case, but we need to start also looking ahead to 
January when the season's over because it's right around the corner. I mean, we're a quarter of the way into the season. Yeah, that's where the relationship from not even a player's – I mean, of course, you know, Trevor Lawrence's relationship with Urban Meyer is important. But more so, this is where the part where the relationship between Shai Khan and Trevor Lawrence kicks in is on January's, you know, in terms of when we come up short and we probably are looking at what's going on unless there's some drastic changes. That falls on Shai Khan to stop that. In terms of getting with not just Trevor Lawrence, but most importantly, yeah, getting with Trevor Lawrence because he's the face of your franchise and he's your franchise quarterback. But the other players as well, getting with everybody and getting their honest takes in terms of players and taking all that in and making the best decision for the team in terms of how they feel about what went on throughout the season and, you know, the disconnect or situation with the coaching staff, how they feel about that. You have to really, really take that stuff in and consider it. And, you know, that's a time will tell thing. You know, we'll know more about that kind of stuff in, in January in terms of how Shot Khan takes that in and adapts and make, try to make things right on that end. Uh, but that being said, if we continue down this path, man, you definitely, like, really need to take in and consider what Trevor Lawrence says if you're Shot Khan in that meeting that you have in January and your, your team leaders as well. Because if it isn't great, then you need to make changes. And that's my thing. Like, you know, I'm not the type that likes to move on from a head coach and we're far from that situation being made again. It's that's more of a January thing, but you know, I don't really like removing, you know, moving on from head coaches that soon, but they need to have a honest conversation with Shad. And that's another thing too, is the players have to be honest with Shad Khan too, and letting them know how they feel about this staff and what went on and what transpired and the future and the outlook of this team too. And Shad Khan needs to heavily weigh that and make whatever changes need to be made. And if Trevor Lawrence comes to you and he says, hey, like, this was a little too dysfunctional for me. If you're Shad Khan, you definitely should probably move on from Urban Meyer. Because, you know, you want, and we've seen this in the past, you want, especially your franchise quarterback, you want him paired with the guy that he's seeing eye to eye with. And we kind of saw a little bit of that this week. Trevor Lawrence is saying one thing and Urban Meyer is saying another thing. It's possible they aren't seeing eye to eye, and that's not good. And that's those are the type of things that lead to what, like you said, Trevor Lawrence leaving when his contract is up or retiring. That leads to that kind of stuff. So, you know, really it falls on Shot Khan, but the the issue with that is Shot Khan has shown us that he doesn't know what the hell he's doing either. And that, that's the scary part about it. Maybe, you know. He, he could figure it out as an owner down the road. But, I mean, we're going on, what, nine years into his tenure, 10 years or something like that. And uh, it's been a lot of dysfunction. But, you know, maybe Trevor Lawrence can help help him make those harder decisions in terms of what needs to be done for the franchise. Yeah, and, you know, there may be some of you out there thinking that we're being overly negative. And I get that, but, like, this is also not a conversation I thought we were going to have to have the second week of October where the team is 0-5, and have they been competitive? Yeah, absolutely. They, they've definitely been competitive. And we just sung the praises of Darrell Bevel, and for the most part, his play calling has been solid. But we also, you know, I mentioned this last week when I joined the Unofficial Titans podcast, and shout out to Stoney for having me on as well. We also didn't expect the first week of October for an episode to include, hey, did you see... Urban Meyer's viral video over the weekend like that shouldn't be happening 
And the fact that it's happening to this franchise is embarrassing because that kind of nonsense is the reason that we're making headlines, not because the football team is getting better. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, you're right. Like, we don't like to have these kind of negative conversations. But one thing I also want to touch on, too, with that relationship and how key it is between Trevor Lawrence and Shaq Khan, too, is that the key now is that although Shaq Khan hasn't been able to make the right decisions, Trevor Lawrence is going to make life easier for him to make those right decisions. That's why he needs to consider what Trevor Lawrence says heavily, because if Trevor Lawrence you know, says like this was way too dysfunctional or something along those lines. And me and Urban Meyer weren't seeing eye to eye. And there is truly a problem and he doesn't hide it. And it, and it actually says that to Sean Cunn. Well, here's the positive part about it now. You're Trevor Lawrence. We have Trevor Lawrence. And when you say that to Sean Cunn, and let's just say hypothetically Sean Cunn makes the change, the good thing about that is, well, with you being Trevor Lawrence, a lot of players or, or excuse me, a lot of coaches would love to work with that. So that's a luxury that Shad Khan has to understand he has and has to understand heading forward that, you know, he has a young quarterback that many veteran coaches uh, that are way more experienced than Urban Meyer, right, would love to coach and could probably do and be more effective with. So I think that's a positive heading forward if that conversation is going to be had and if we're having that conversation now five weeks into the season is that I don't think – there would be a shortage of suitors, at least in, in terms of, you know, the next head coaching candidates of guys that would like to work with Trevor Lawrence. And shotgun has to know that. And he has to understand that, like, hey, look, I don't care how much money you invested into this current coaching staff, including Urban Meyer. Do not anchor yourself to them if they aren't getting the results that fans want, that you want and that Trevor Lawrence and his team wants as well. Yeah, keep Trevor happy. That's a pretty simple philosophy. And listen to the guy that has pretty much won his entire life as well. You know, if he comes in and says, hey, Mr. Khan, I don't think that this is working. And I think that Trevor would also be one of the leaders that could probably gather some people together. He could probably get together with Marvin Jones and Josh Allen and some of these other leaders and say, hey, let's go speak to Mr. Khan together. Because I think that maybe he would probably want to go in there as a unit, you know, but probably wouldn't want to go have that conversation by himself. He wants to show that everybody is on a united front. And again, this is just a theoretical situation that we're putting together in our mind. Do we have any insider information that this is going to happen or this is how they feel? Absolutely not. Don't take it that way. But if things don't change fast and if we don't stop ending up in national media for the wrong reasons, then yes, these conversations between the players are going to start happening if they haven't already started happening. Let's get to the other side of the football here, Jay, because um, we're getting to the point of the season also where it's like there's not much else we can talk about on these week-to-week breakdowns, you know, because we're seeing the same thing over and over again. Defensively, this is another game where, for the most part, they're doing what they can. Like, our buddy Eric said this while we were at the game. It's a... Good defense. He's never seen a defense play this well that consistently gives up 30 points. And again, I think I made a couple of weeks ago, I made the analogy of a, you know, a dam just finally breaking. They can only hold so long before the other team just starts to run up the score. And you definitely saw that here. Now you see Josh Allen, Caleb on chase on Dewan Smoot, all each have a sack or a share of a sack. Caleb I do, man, I do have to, 
shout my praises, sing my praises here, Jay, as far as the tweet that I put out. Because when it happened in the game, talking about that <laughs> Caleb on Chason sack, I tweeted out, if you haven't seen it, Caleb Vaughn's going to post something on Instagram about that sack and the Jaguars are going to lose by 20. And lo and behold, the next day, <laughs> we see that Instagram post. Swiper still swipe. I'm just so done with Caleb Vaughn Chason on my end. And I'll, you know, I'll, have, I'll see what you have to say about that here in just a moment. And a lot of that has to do with, of course, he is involved with the Jalen Ramsey trade. He has no control over that. But defensively, I mean, you look at the, uh, as far as some of the highest rated players, only one of them shows up on the defensive side, and that's Josh Allen, who had an 85.3 as far as their PFF grades for week five. All the rest were offensive players. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Dewan Smoot was also on there. So Josh Allen, Dewan Smoot, both were the highest amongst the highest graded Jaguars on PFF. Again, as we say every week, if you're somebody that buys into those statistics. But, Jay, we have to talk about first Shaq Griffin and continuing to... He, he continues to, on paper play well, but we talked about this before we got started. You got to get one of these interceptions. I'm sick of seeing him drop one of these guaranteed interceptions, and you don't have to catch all of them because you're a defensive back. We know that you're not a wide receiver, but you have to get one of these, and we still haven't seen that yet. So those are just a couple of things that I noticed here, Jay. You know, as far as the defensive side of things, what did you see as you were uh, you know, watching this game? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll start with the Shaq Griffin thing. Yeah, it's important that you get those th- those interceptions if you're Shaq because, one, the Jaguars paid you a lot of money. This offseason, you were the highest-paid acquisition, and they needed more high-paid acquisitions, to be honest with you, than aside from him. But you were one of the highest-paid acquisitions that this team got in, you know, March or, uh, you know, when the free agency period hit. And not only that, you need to get those interceptions. And look, in his defense, he's come out to say, like, I have to grab those and we have to do better. Like, he's taking this burden on himself, you know, and you can feel it in his energy. You can feel it in the press conferences that they, he understands that they need to do better and he needs to do better, too, as a defensive backs group and him as a defensive back. But, yeah, like, you have to snag those because you know why Urban Meyer goes into press conference at the press conferences praising you as one of the leaders of this team. And when one hits you smack dab in the hands, even if you are a defensive back, our coaches always used to say, if it hits you in the hands, you got to catch it. And I would think that's a mentality that carries over to the NFL, uh, especially with how easy those catches have been for Shaq. He can't leave those on the field, especially with the margin of error for this team. You know, And I know like that's a little harsh because they have so little margin for error, but those are gimmies that's hitting Shaq Griffin in the hand. And, he, he has to snag those to help uh, get the this team some wins. And because, look, when we look back at it, chances are when we get our first win, because I don't think we're going to go winless. We'll talk about that on another day. Um, and that's not to say I think we're good or we're going to get a lot of wins or we're going to even get five wins. But it's just hard to go winless in modern NFL. But when we get our first win, chances are we're going to look back at a play that Shaq Griffin or one of those leaders on the defensive side had to make whether it's Rashawn Jenkins or Miles Jack, it's going to be one crucial play that we say, hey, that was the play that ultimately helped us win the game. Because, again, the margin for error is so small, and they need at least one or two impact defensive plays on that side of the ball to help the offense in return, which is playing better. So in terms of the defense as a whole, I mean, like, in the first half, I wasn't disappointed in what they held Derrick Henry into, you know, 
But I also knew, like, how long is that sustainable? How long can you keep hitting this guy that's 230-plus pounds, whatever it is? He, he's a freaking F-150 truck. How long can you keep hitting that guy and sustain this? Because he wears on you. And three-quarters of hitting Derrick Henry, eventually he's going to start breaking some of those. You're going to get and tired you know, before he gets tired. Right, right, because that's just the makeup of Derrick Henry's body. And that being said, we saw that eventually, you know, he I think he had one touchdown in the first half. But I think like for the most part in the first half, he was held to like under three yards or, or th- roughly three yards a carry or something like that. I have to go back and look at it. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But then when that second half came in, he added the two touchdowns and he added a bulk of his yards as well, if I can recall, too. And I looked at the statistics. Right. And I said this in the paper, in the USA Today paper, I believe it was. They can't let him get over 90 yards because if he gets over 90 yards, they're going to win. Tennessee's going to win. Not only did he get over that, he got well past that. And he accounted for 21 of the, what, 37 or so points that the Tennessee Titans got. If Derrick Henry has that kind of day against this defense, that answers everything. We don't have to do any more analysis. Derrick Henry put on a clinic on the Jacksonville Jaguars, probably more so in the second half. And like you said, that conversation you had with Eric, like they'll play well, but sometimes it also comes down to this too. They just don't have the talent and they need that guy to make their mid-tier guys look very good. And then they also have to weed out again, going back to what I said last week. They got a bunch of players that won't be playing or starting on other teams in that unit. That has to get fixed. And again, I think that boils down to Trent Baalke and Urban Meyer. They need to be active in this trade deadline because there's no way you're fixing all of this next year. If you have a future here next year, that's another conversation, as we said, for another time. But if you think you're going to be here next year, you got to start fixing this now. And Anybody that's a bona fide starter or all pro that's on the market, you might want to get involved in the trade there because you did so terribly in free agency, and that's why you are here in this current state with your defense now. We also talked about this here, Jay. If if you're looking at let's try and fix this in free agency, they need a two-year run where, remember, they brought in Malik Jackson, Calais Campbell, A.J. Boye, Barry Church, and Tashawn Gibson. And this goes back to the conversation we just had. Those guys aren't going to want to come here under this current regime. So you're going to have to acquire them other ways which is, like you said, the trade. So I know a lot of people were talking about, why didn't we throw that sixth-round pick at the New England Patriots? The other side of that is Stephon Gilmore is not going to want to play here. You know, like, this is where, again, this leadership is going to be so, so important because so far, nobody's looking around the league and saying, man, I wish I was there outside of Trevor Lawrence, you know? Is playing with Trevor Lawrence enough of a benefit for my career that I want to put it in jeopardy by going to Jacksonville? I don't know that the answer is yes, despite the quarterback. So you're not going to get those guys in free agency. So yeah, Jay, they are going to have to make some sort of move. And then you see it just last night. We're recording this on a Monday. You see Calais Campbell making plays still for the Baltimore Ravens. He blocks that field goal at the end of the game. And lo and behold the Ravens win it. So yeah, they're going to have to go out there and find that guy. And it's again, the same conversation we're having each and every single week. And I, we apologize if we're getting repetitive, but 
you're seeing the same thing that we are. So this is just our opportunity to air out our frustrations and your frustrations. And remember, just last week, Davey Hudson, our buddy from Believe in Titans, pointed out the least amount of points that a Ryan Tannehill-led Titans team has scored against Jacksonville is 31. So maybe we should have seen this coming. And eventually, like I said, the defense just holds on for as long as it can before the whole thing just blows up. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. And part of it falls on this too. And, you know, we, I've danced around this, but I knew it when we lost Dave Caldwell that one of the traits, not saying he should have necessarily been here again, it's, it sounded repetitive, not saying they should have necessarily retained him. But one of the things I fear when you move on to a guy like Trent Baalke is do you have a aggressive enough GM in terms of uh, spending the money? You know, that's an issue we'll have to dress down the road too. One thing I won't complain about is Dave Caldwell's aggressiveness. And he knew he had to overpay people to get him to come here. And guess what? While people were saying, oh, that's too much for Malik. That's too much for Clays. That's too much for this player. That's too much for that player. I understood what it was. That's what you're going to have to do. Trent Baalke's going to have to take that part. And he was under Dave Caldwell for a year. He's going to have to take that mentality if he's going to be here for much longer. And I personally don't want him here for another year. But if he's going to be here for another year, he's going to have to take that mentality of Dave Caldwell, that part of maybe what he learned being under Dave Caldwell, that aggression, that aggressiveness in terms of, hey, people aren't going to want to come here, but you got to overpay and you got to do what you got to do to fix this. Uh, because, look, look, this is one thing about it. Trent Baalke knows what a good defense looks like when you look back at that San Francisco 49ers defense that they put together when he was there. And to even get anything remotely close to that, he's going to have to overpay some. And that's okay, because at the end of the day, it's about keeping your job and making Trevor Lawrence happy. And we just saw it with the guys from the 2017 team. You can unload those contracts. You can get out of, remember, we say this all the time, Jay, the salary cap is a myth. You can get your way out of that. And that's to everybody who said, no one's trading for Nick Foles. What the hell happened? Somebody traded for Nick Foles. It is not impossible to get out from under those contracts. So, yes, you are going to end up having to overpay guys, and it's got to be the right guys, of course. That's definitely very, very important. But sometimes you have to overpay for some of these guys to come in, play well in the beginning, and then at the end you figure something out because that's just the formula. And we saw it working here for a very, very brief amount of time, and it can work again. So, yeah, Trent Baalke is, like you said, he's going to have to have a little bit of Dave Caldwell in him, which is a weird sentence to say. But, I mean, ultimately, I think what we'd like is for a more capable person in charge altogether. So I'm not sure where they start because, again, I'm not sure who's coming here. I don't know if they have the willingness to trade some of these draft picks that it's going to take to bring in some of the talent. Just off the top of my head, Jay, is there anybody out there that you know of that might be on the trade block that they could go target? Off the top of my head, we don't know that he's necessarily on the trade market. Nobody go running with this as a report but Michael Thomas. And this is where, see, this is where you have to use the elements that people like about your team. This is where you have to use those things. And I'm not even talking about Trevor Lawrence here, but we literally just saw Michael Thomas come up the bat for, I think on Twitter, it wasn't him necessarily, but he liked the tweet. He retweeted uh, it. Come up the yeah. bat for, yeah, bat for Urban Meyer. Like that people, you know, which, it, which is kind of true. You know, people do like to, hate Urban Meyer and he's giving people more than enough reason to do it too as well but like it's times where he's literally been doing nothing me and you said it like he can go to Publix and buy a loaf of bread and ESPN is all over it like oh the, the, he 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 bought 
bread that was expired. You know, like the dude literally. <laughs> Why didn't he buy organically outsourced bread? Right. Like, and what does that mean for Trevor Lawrence? Right. He literally can't walk outside with PFT or somebody from, um, you know, ESPN, as we said, like, you know, jumping down his throat. So, you know, that that was kind of true uh, in his defense. But, yeah, like you got to use those type of connections that Urban Meyer has. If Urban Meyer say, hey, I think I could get this guy here because I have a connection with him and he's a bona fide stud like Michael Thomas, you jump all over it if you're Trent Baalke. You know, you you do what you have to do to get that guy here. Because, look, even I'm here to tell you, even if you think DJ Chark is good, like me and Phil believe that he's good, uh, he's not Michael Thomas. You know, like that's an instant upgrade. And, you you know, a model that you can look at and kind of it shows you what a team could be, not necessarily this year because they have been terrible, but the aggression and the trade aggression that you've seen from the Colts year after year. The only issue is with the Colts is, and this is something that's really beyond their power. The reason why the Colts are bad is not because they're badly managed. They've been aggressive in trading for people. They made the right decisions in drafting. The only issue is Andrew Luck abruptly retired. They can't control that. That's something out of their power. You know, and I, I pray to God they fire Chris Ballard and we pick up Chris Ballard because Andrew Luck retired. That'll be a huge get. I love the work he's done. but. That was something that was out of their power, but they, you know, they traded for, uh, you know, guys here and there that are elite. DeForest Buckner. DeForest Buckner of the world, and it's made them a better team as a result, not necessarily this year again, but. They draft guys like Jonathan Taylor and move on from guys like Malik Hooker, most importantly, too. They know when to buy and when to sell. If you don't have that within you as a GM, you're in a lot of trouble. So, you know, they can look at a lot of things that organization has done and take some notes of it. Yeah, Jay. And then, of course, the very last thing we will discuss is the Jaguars' continued kicking woes. We see Matthew Wright come into the Cincinnati game and, of course, nail both of his extra points. And then in this game here at home, first game at home in front of the home crowd, 0 for 1 on field goals, 1 for 2 on extra points. I don't know if it makes you feel a little better, Jay, that every kicker in the NFL seemed to struggle on Sunday and Monday, but that's where we're at. And I think you mentioned, you know, before we started, you maybe give Matthew Wright, what, one more week because it seems like Lambeau's days are kind of numbered here and they go to the well again for another kicker. I mean, this is really just putting a Band-Aid on a huge leak. Like, this is going to be a problem we're going to have the entire season until we draft, of course, Cameron Dicker from the University of Texas. Uh, kicker University, as we as I established last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, would love to get an actual kicker that from the University of Texas looking at their body of work and how they... Like, because again, that goes, which is just Justin Tucker. Like that's the body of work is just, <laughs> which is good enough. <laughs> I mean, they, they've got some guys on there that could have been pretty good special team players aside from him, not necessarily kickers, but you know, skill guys, maybe um, I have to look back to see what their history is like, but I, I feel like I remember like some Jordan Shipley, like guys coming out of there that I was thinking like, Hey, he'll be a good return on special teamer uh, on special teams or something like that. But I digress from my point. But, yeah, man, like, that goes back. You know, we talked about this multiple times and probably talked about this week before last. Special teams is becoming a lost art in football. That's not making an excuse for the Jaguars. But as you said, you look, Lee, why nobody's making kicks? It's not like it was back in the day. Like, literally, everybody's starting kicker wasn't missing extra points unless it got blocked or something weird happened. Now, man, like, it's like 
you have to go back to maybe even high school. What are they teaching these kids in terms of special teams? Because special teams is at an all-time low in terms of how it's looking on the field. Now, in terms of right, I will say, yeah, like you said, I would give him one more swing at it because, I mean, like his history prior to this game was pretty, you know, respectable, albeit a short body of work. And then you look at it too, also some things I was considering, yeah, he missed the field goal and it ticked a lot of people off and they should rightfully be angry about missing the field goal and missing extra points. But you look at it like the field goal, the 53-yard field goal was like, if I can recall, literally online to go right down the middle. He just didn't have enough juice on it. And I bring it up because whereas you see that field goal, it's like it just didn't clear the upright or the bottom upright, should I say. You look in comparison to Josh Lambo, right? Josh Lambo was shanking stuff wide left and wide right. This kid at least has the ball online. And this is like little, little things you have to pick up on, on special teams when you watch it. But that being said, like and even the extra point he missed after the first score the Jaguars had, just a little bit more to the right that goes in. You know, so just I would say keep at it with this kid for now. Because for one, well, he's a young kicker, 25 years of age. See how he reacts to it. You know, see if he can bounce back to it and and, and whatnot. That's the difference. He has upside because he's younger and newer and only has played in a few games as an NFL player. As opposed to Josh Lambeau, there's no need to continue going on with Josh Lambeau. He's 28 years old. He's getting his second chance with a team in the Jaguars. We've seen his best, in other words. There, you know, he, he really can't get any better but he certainly can get worse so that's why i say go with the young kid and see what's out there if he doesn't work out go find you a veteran kicker that has a decent body of work and uh you know instead of just keep getting these young kids just get you a veteran kicker that has proven that they can at least make extra points and while you were talking about all that here jay the other kicker i knew there was one more kicker from the university of texas that had a pretty good nfl career and that is phil dawson Phil Dawson was also a kicker that went to the University of Texas. So yeah, you know what? We'll, we're moving on from DBU. We're kicker you now. We'll just take that <laughs> since everybody wants to argue with me as far as that goes. But yeah, like you said, the real issue is here, and you've mentioned this before, they haven't drafted a young kicker to develop in a very, very long time. Spend a seventh round pick on that kicker and build him up. Maybe this is what they're trying to do with Matthew Wright, but and there's not necessarily you know a a lot of really great options, of course, on the street. Otherwise, they would be on NFL rosters. So you or really one of those like, six rounders, right? That those exactly one of those. Guy. You got enough. I think they have thirty-two picks in the in the sixth round. You know, so just use one of the thirty-two selections you have in round six. So the silver lining again, maybe, is that everybody seems to be struggling, and that goes back to like Jay said, is just they're just not coaching it the way that they used to. That may sound very get off my lawn, but that's kind of the case is what's happening with special teams. It's just not an emphasis anymore. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah, even in high school, bro, we was getting like chewed out for special teams play, man. Like that's how how seriously they taught it back when. And that that ain't necessarily that long ago when I was in high school necessarily. You know, like special teams mistakes weren't tolerated and special teams like our coaches put a lot of time and effort into it in high school you know and I feel like I mean we see we're seeing this in general with the college football community too is that you know they aren't necessarily sending a lot of players into the NFL not even special teams 
but a lot of players into the NFL, NFL ready, not even quarterbacks anymore. You know, Trevor Lawrence is, I don't even know that Dabo Sweeney, like, really was trying to get him, you know, and I have to research all of that, get him NFL ready. But Trevor Lawrence is just good at everything. He'll adapt to whatever game. He's probably good at trouble, monopoly, whatever game you want to throw at him, he's good and he'll figure it out and win it. Uno, spades, both of them. Like he's <laughs> Right, right. He, he's just built different. But, you know, like a lot of these, uh, even the quarterback position, a lot of these coaches aren't coaching that how it needs. And that's the most important position on the field. So just think about how much of an afterthought special teams could be if people aren't even coaching up quarterbacks right to go to the NFL. Like it kind of makes sense. It kind of does, which is which is sad. Maybe we should start a special teams university, Phil. Maybe we should be a PFF special teams analyst community or something like that and just start is there a uh, a kicker camp like there was for tight end camp this year they need right. that's what they need justin <laughs> they tucker need and i don't even know who else would would coach that it would have been josh lambo two years ago but now i think it might be just justin tucker and i i don't know but the uh, i think the cardinals have a really uh, matt prater yeah yeah so hit us up on it like we'll organize of course y'all gotta pay us to we, we we'll take 30 percent we'll be happy That'll, that'll be good. Right, we'll right. take that. Hit, hit us up. Anybody wanted, who wants to collab on a <laughs> special teams university, we'll go. put in work. And we'll, we'll send better special teams players to the NFL, and we'll coach up NFL players that uh, have not been all that great at special teams, too. Right. So be on the lookout for that. And any sponsors that want to reach out to us, like Jay said, you can find our information in the show notes. But Jay, before we get into this matchup with the Miami Dolphins over in London... Is there anything else you wanted to highlight from week five before we look ahead and go behind enemy lines as we do each and every single week? Nah, I mean, that's pretty much it, man. Can't wait to talk to Brian on the Miami Dolphins, um, who, you know, they're kind of struggling as well. So I'm curious to know, like, what's going on with them, because I really like, we said this last year, really like Brian Flores. We like what they were building last year, but I mean, obviously, you know, Tua has been injured, so that probably hurt him, but. Also, what else is going on? Defense isn't necessarily playing that good, and uh, so on and so forth. So, yeah, man, let's get into that. Yeah, and as last week where I went solo with Believe in the Titans, Jay went solo this week with Cat. But without further ado, let's go behind enemy lines with the Miami Dolphins with Brian Cat Catanzaro from On the Fin Side. All right, everybody, welcome to the Believe in Jags podcast. As always, you all know that we've been trying to do it weekly, except for week one, we weren't able to do so. But aside from week one, we've been trying to go behind enemy lines and find out some information and some intel on the opponent of uh, the Jags of each week. This week, as we all know, we're going across the pond and we will be facing the Miami Dolphins, our, I guess you could say, AFC brethren from the state of Florida. But uh, that being said, we got my man in from last year, and me and Brian have been actually collabing for years now, but you all might remember him from last year on the Believe in Jazz podcast. We got Brian Catanzaro here, and um, you could find all of his stuff with the On the Fin Side podcast. Of course, we'll have that all in the handle, but Brian, first and foremost, man, welcome to the podcast, and how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I, and I appreciate you us being able to collaborate when the Jaguars and Dolphins play. It seems like that happens a little bit more frequently. We played last year and a couple of years before that too. So thanks for having me on. 
Yeah, it keeps that uh, and no problem at all. It keeps that Florida rivalry going. We don't really get to play the Tampa Bay Bucks that much, and you know that's probably more so to do with them being in the NFC. But uh, yeah, it's always a fun time, even though uh, y'all handed it to us in the last game, which was that was a prime time game, if I can recall. Yeah, Week Four. Now that I think about it, and uh, the Jaguars didn't have the uh, best outing there, but uh, nonetheless, here we are. And the first question I want to ask to you, basically, is, uh, you know, how we started off the last podcast when we last spoke with you last year, and that was uh, talking about Brian Flores, right? Uh, so we're a year removed from that time that we last spoke with you, a year and some change. Um, you know, a lot has transpired, a lot has changed. So what's the feeling on him, especially when you consider more so how this year started off, albeit and we'll talk about him later as well. You know, he started a lot of these first five games without Tua. Right. Overall, it's it's a difficult time to answer that question right now because a month ago, you wouldn't have found any Dolphins fan that had anything negative to say about Brian Flores. I mean, you look back at 2019 when he was hired. I mean, the Dolphins stripped their team down so bad that, you know, people like Steve Young and Dominique Foxworth were saying, the Dolphins should have been investigated for tanking games and they were five and four to end that season, which was just incredible. Then last year, you know, favored to win about or projected to win about seven or eight games and they go 10 and six. And in just about any other year, they would have been a playoff team, but they definitely exceeded expectations too. They beat the Patriots in week one, then Tua goes down and now they're zero and four in their previous, you know, four games. So, that has a lot to do with kind of the negative ambiance of the Dolphins and Brian Flores right now among Dolphins fans. But overall, you know, as I stand here right now, I, I, I take it two different ways is number one, I think his teams have greatly exceeded expectations the last two years. And one sign of that is how much they were able to cut down on penalties immediately from the Adam Gaze era and overachieve in the record. But on the other hand, the Dolphins, it looks like could have written a book on how to have the worst offense in the league. They picked the wrong quarterback to this point, picked Tua over Herbert. I wanted Tua, but it is what it is. They did nothing at running back. They don't have a, a startable option at running back and they have the worst offensive line in the league. So at some point, if you're the head coach and you've been there three years, that falls on you as well. And defensively, they haven't been able to stop the run. So other than the secondary, which is also starting to crack, it hasn't looked good the last four weeks. So Brian Flores certainly gets the rest of the year to turn this around. But if things go from bad to worse, it could be pretty uncomfortable for the Dolphins and Brian Flores at the end of the year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you probably said a lot that is more so music to the Jags fans ears, which we kind of talked about this on y'all's podcast is the whole ordeal with the run and them stopping the run. And uh, shout outs to Lori Fitzpatrick, who she's um, in the Jaguars Twitter community. She does cuts and snippets of the games. And she was one that brought that to our attention too, to the Jags Twitter community uh, attention as well. Is uh, yeah, the amount of yards that they've allowed against the run. And I think the last clip actually that I literally saw on Twitter was from her. And she was explaining, you know, like how, I, if I can recall, I think it was Josh Allen that had a good game running the ball against them, um, or it was a quarterback that I can't remember that had a, a pretty good game running the ball against them. 
And uh, that being said, you know, that could open up the option and whatnot for Trevor Lawrence and what have you, uh, because that's something that they have implemented aside from, you know, also implementing James Robinson into the plan a little bit more. But it's his ability, Trevor Lawrence's ability to run as well. And we saw that in, in college at Clemson, you know, that was a big part of his game. And, you know, we're just kind of happy that they haven't alienated it now They because in the beginning of the season, they really didn't use his legs. So maybe this is an opportunity for him uh, to, you know, get one of those games where he has over 50 yards rushing. We'll see. I mean, of course, we want him to protect himself. We don't want football Jesus hurting himself. But, uh, you know, be smart with it, of course, as he has. And, um, yeah, we'll see, though. Um, again, that kind of correlates it to what I was saying. Maybe we see a shootout here on both ends in terms of offensive firepower. But um, I digress from my point, though. Um, you, were you going to say something else? I, I think you wanted to add something there. Yeah, and as far as the run defense is concerned, um, I mean, on the season, the Dolphins have allowed to opposing starting running backs just over 5.3 yards to carry. Uh, and they faced not great running backs overall. They didn't face Derrick Henry like the Jaguars did last week. They Damian Harris, Devin Singletary, Peyton Barber, Jonathan Taylor was a good one. And Leonard Fournette, four of those five backs aren't great. And you, I mean, so to allow over 5.3 yards of carry is, is unacceptable. And there are some reasons for that. I mean, Raquan Davis for the Dolphins has, has been out for most of the year. They got him back last game. He wasn't 100%. And they, they've lost Kyle Van Noy and Shaq Lawson on their front seven too, which took a lot of teeth out of that front seven and run defense. Uh, so you know, it's been a problem with running backs getting into the hole and not being touched for the first four or five yards, which really isn't good for anybody on the Dolphins defense. Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like, you know, they're struggling there. Maybe they could, as you said, they can find their footing. Um, it's still relatively early. And when you have the records that the Jags and, and Dolphins have, it's kind of easy to lose track of that. But, you know, it's a lot of things that could happen. And, you know, people forget there's an extra game in the mix now. It's 17 games. So, uh, you know, a lot of improvement can be made, especially, you know, in terms of the Dolphins team overall with Tua coming back and uh, maybe finding his footing. So that's where my next question goes to, and I'm going to say it way into that. So on him, uh, how did 2020 go for him? Because if I can recall week four, they started Fitzpatrick when we played him. So he hadn't touched the field then. But um, how did last year go for him? And um, also, you know, how did the early portion of this year go for Tua and just Give us your overall assessment of him and how he's looked on the field. There are a couple of things that I think two is unfairly judged for. Number one is that Justin Herbert was taken one spot after him and is looking like the future superstar of the NFL. It was two or Herbert, Herbert Tua, always leaning toward Tua for the Dolphins with that fifth overall pick in the 2020 draft. That's one thing. Secondly, Brian Flores did something last year that, I absolutely hated at the time, and I hate now even more. He benched Tua in the fourth quarter of two games during a promising rookie year. I mean, two weeks after taking the Dolphins on his back and beating the Arizona Cardinals in, in Arizona with a fantastic game, he's being benched in the fourth quarter. To me, that's unacceptable. And otherwise, he had a very promising rookie year. I mean, it, they were six and three with him as starter. Yeah. He had a couple of bad games, but every rookie does, he had a couple of good games and he had a couple of okay games. So, you know, then this year they surround him with a bunch of weapons. They draft Jalen Waddle sixth overall. They signed Will Fuller who hasn't been healthy. And then in the first game against new England, the dolphins went 17 to 16 Tua has a, 
a solid game. And we're looking forward for looking forward to seeing more. And that's when he got hurt in the first quarter of the Bills game. So overall, the arrow has been steadily pointing down more and more with Tua because of the injuries, because of the benching last year, because of Justin Herbert. But this is going to be big for the Dolphins and for two of the rest of the year. They've got 12 games left. They don't have the most difficult schedule. Then again, teams probably look at the Dolphins the same way too. So he's got to turn it around and show that he's that quarterback that deserves the opportunity again in 2022. Yeah, yeah. I'm real curious on how the rest of the season goes for him because, like, it just astonishes me, not necessarily Miami media and Miami Dolphins fans, but the national media, right? How they are so quick to want to move on from Tua. It's like this young man doesn't have that big of a body of work yet. Like, the whole, you know... Let's go get Deshaun Watson thing, which I I get it, you know, if he could clear all the legal hurdles. And, you know, that's another story for another time right there. I I mean, I get it because Deshaun Watson is a top five player probably in the league and all of that. But at the same time, like I I just, you know, it just confuses me, like how people are so willing to move on from two or just what, two years into his career, which, you know, like. The upside is definitely there. And, uh, you know, it's not like the C.J. Henderson situation, right, where he was, um, you know, again, C.J. Henderson, when he was on the field, like, he had flashes here and there, but they weren't, like, that significant to the point where it's like, let's hang on to this guy. Uh, it's different with Tua. Like, you know, he, he to me, when he came out of Alabama, and it's still to this day, he's probably the most all-around polished, best Alabama quarterback I've seen and the one that I felt most comfortable with in terms of translating into the NFL with the right coaching, of course, even over Mac Jones. Like I never really got into the Mac Jones hype or anything like that. Tua has already always been that guy. So I uh, will see. Yeah, Tua's never, you know, he's never had, he's not going to have the strongest arm. He's not the biggest guy. The thing that I don't agree with what Brian Flores has done and what the Dolphins organization has done is that they put Tua in too early when Ryan Fitzpatrick was doing well, they then watched him do well. They benched him in the fourth quarter of two games. And then they trade, they tried several times to trade for a guy who has 22 sexual assault charges against him, like every step of the way. And not to mention, Oh yeah. They, they put him behind the worst offensive line in the league. Like that is a right down the line, the worst way that you can possibly develop an NFL quarterback. So I'm not surprised he's in the situation he is now. That's why I'm really rooting for Tua to go out there the rest of the year and prove people wrong. Well, if he can go on Sunday, this Jacksonville defense certainly can make it happen in terms of him starting off on the right note from uh, from his injury because uh, as me and you discussed earlier on y'all's podcast, uh, their passing defense specifically has been terrible. But We'll uh, go into the next question here, and uh, we I want to talk about that defense. You already talked about them a little bit with, in terms of the run game and all of that. Um, I think, like, the last time I looked on the NFL database, they were 26th overall in terms of overall defense. So what has been the cause aside from the run game of, uh, for their struggles? Because if I can recall, they're not the strongest against the pass either. But at the same time, you know, like, some of these things, you know, it's it's always more than one thing when a defense is – typically in the back fourth or back half of the NFL. So if you would just kind of explain like what's going on with the defense, aside from what you already said about the run game. Sure. So the Dolphins defense is built through the secondary. That's why they've spent a lot of money 
on Byron Jones and Xavier Howard. And overall, those have been very, very good investments, especially last year. I mean, they're able, few teams have cornerbacks that are able to win battles on both sides of the field. And that really helped the Dolphins out last year. But this year, things are a little bit different, you know, because not, really, I, I point to two things. Number, number one, last year, the Dolphins were number one in third down defense, something like 34%. This year, they're 57%, one of the worst in the league. Secondly, they led the league in turnovers last year. I think the number was 29. This year, they're middle of the pack. So just those two things, third down defense and turnovers, is, was the big staple of the Dolphins team last year and the reason they won 10 games. Now, this year, those things are very hard to repeat. So they haven't been forced in the turnovers. They're not getting off the field on third down. And because of that, that's starting to affect the secondary. And then you, you sprinkle in there, too, that they've gone from a pretty good team against the run to a team in a defense that can't stop anybody because of the injury to Raekwon Davis and their undersized linebacker group of Jerome Baker, Alandon Roberts, and Andrew Van Ginkle, who have not played well this year. Now. As the schedule starts to, to weaken a little bit, maybe those players start to step up a little bit. But yeah, it, it certainly hasn't been the same defense. But on paper, at least, by far their biggest strength is still Xavier Howard and Byron Jones at the corner spots. Yeah, that's cornerback play that we wish we had here. I try, I'm trying to tell you, man, because again, as I told you, Tyson Campbell hasn't played like a top 33 pick that he is. Uh, you know, Shaq Griffin is dropping picks. He's left three picks on the, the field. Hopefully that gets cleaned up. But he's the best corner they have. But you can't, like, when you're the number one guy, you can't leave three picks on the field, especially for the margin of error with this defense. So, like, you know, I'm here to tell you, man, when everybody started putting all those hot takes out there about the trade rumors of Xavier and Howard, like, people were like, oh, yeah, the Jacksonville needs to look into that. But, you know, of course, they got that taken care of. That's what the good franchises do, though. You know, whereas here with Jalen Ramsey, we trade him for two first-round picks. Brian Flores and company, they find a way to retain their unhappy and disgruntled cornerbacks. So that's a good sign on their part that they could do that because, look, I'm here to tell you, man, I've seen what a bad franchise look uh, looks like at that position and how they handle personnel. And, you know, I think the Miami Dolphins, is, they're pretty much far from that. But uh, you know, I guess ultimately time will tell. We got to see how the season goes. So uh, my next question is continuing on the personnel, right? Uh, who are some underrated players to know on both the offensive and defensive sides? And maybe uh, maybe a special teamer if you want to throw a special teamer out there as well. Sure. I'd say uh, on offense, not sure how high he is on some people's radars, but Miles Gaskin at running back, you know, is, is a name people know. He's, he's very underrated as a receiver in the passing game. And Gaskin, if you remember the first quarter of last year against the Jaguars, had five catches in the first quarter, and it really opened up things for the rest of the offense. And we started to see that last week when the Dolphins got 10 points in the first quarter against the Bucs. They got wiped out after that. But, you know, when you get Gaskin involved in the passing game early, it starts to put a lot of stress uh, on that linebacker group for whatever team that they're playing, because you got to start double teaming Miles Gaskin then underneath. So that's something to look out for. On the defensive side of the ball, in addition to Byron Jones and Xavier Howard, to me, one of the best nickelbacks in the league, the Dolphins have in Nick Needham. So he's good. You're going to see him in the slot 
he plays somewhere between 75 and 80% of defensive snaps. So anytime you see the Jaguars going out in three wide receiver sets, you can expect Nick Needham to be out there as well. Gotcha. Yeah. That, and uh, heads up those um, multiple receiver sets, especially like those trips, bunch situations, the Jaguars struggle with them. And uh, if the Miami Dolphins are a team and, you know, every team has crossers in their playbook, but if the Miami Dolphins have a heavy playbook of crossers, uh, the Jaguars are going to struggle uh, because they don't just they don't match up well on man to man situations in those situations. And they, you know, they just kind of get crossed up in those situations, which I wrote about in the paper. So we'll see like how that goes. Um, That might be, you know, how they exploit them. We'll see. But I, I mean, like for me, I think my biggest concern in terms of the guys and this is not necessarily an underrated guy but a guy more so that's just new to the NFL, Jalen Waddle concerns me. And I think what the Jaguars have to do, because based off of just what I read and seen, that was Tua's favorite target when he was healthy. And I think what the Jaguars yep. might have to do is to basically, uh, they might have to put Shaq Griffin on him and trail him. Because if Jalen Waddle gets on any other cornerback or any other situation that's not Shaq Griffin, it could be a long day. And I mean, he was a guy I was personally high on anyway, coming out of Alabama and also, furthermore, he's a guy that Jaguars were high on, and they had a elite grade on him. But I think what it was is they might have had him flat for an injury, but he had a, a pretty high grade up there. It was probably, I mean, I don't know for sure, but we've seen documentaries on this and, like, they, their little series that they do. Uh, he had yep. a high grade that was, like, you know, a top-tier grade that probably was only below Trevor Lawrence's. That's what I heard with the Jaguars and supposedly the, the Dolphins were in the same situation where they had him as the second overall player in the draft. And you can certainly see the talent there with Waddle. He gets open. He has unbelievable speed. The, the frustrating thing with him is that you take a look at the last couple of games, he is getting open, but Kobe Brissett has been a quarterback. So he is so inclined to taking the check down. He's not waiting to see Jalen Waddle downfield. If you've got Waddle, possibly coming open 30 yards downfield, but you've got a running back over here for a three-yard drop-off. Brissett's going to take the three-yard drop-off every time, and that's been frustrating to watch as a Dolphins fan the last few few games, and that's what we're hoping is going to change when Tua gets back into the lineup here. Yeah, yeah. we you, You're preaching to the choir on Jacoby Brissett. We know a lot about him from his time with the Colts. The Jaguars have won at least what, like two games with Brissett there starting or something like that. Uh, he just and he doesn't get the ball out. I don't know if this is still an issue. He just didn't get the ball out of his hands on time, and uh, he no, just it's still an issue. It okay, so there you go. He he didn't have that internal clock. It's like, dude, man, you're making this easy for us. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I I wish exactly right starting for uh the Colts, but uh, <laughs> I, I digress from the point. So um yeah. We'll just go ahead right now with this last question and wrap it up with question number five. I just want to know your predictions and uh, how you feel this game will go. And I mean, you are quite familiar with the Dolphins playing across the pond because they've done it multiple times before. Uh, what's your feeling about going into this game and um, what they could do and what the outcome could be? I mean, because you got to feel like it's a must win game for them. They only have one win on the season and you can't drop a game to the Jaguars if you're a one and what it is one in five team. Yeah. One in four now. And I thought last, I thought I really felt the dolphins had to win one of their last two games against the Colts. 
which that was a stinger and, you know, beat convincingly by a Colts team without half the roster that hurt. And then they get creamed by the bucks by four touchdowns. And it should have been five if they didn't take a knee on the two yard line to end the game. But looking at this game, I go back to really two matchups is number one, James Robinson averaging 5.8 yards of carry on the year and the dolphins run defense averaging or allowing over 5.3 yards of carry to opposing running backs. The Dolphins defensively have to know that they've got to tighten up early and make Trevor Lawrence beat him with his arm early and hopefully force him into a few mistakes. The other matchup is, you know, hopefully Devontae Parker's back. He didn't practice today on Wednesday, but they've got to take advantage of that Jaguar secondary that's that's allowing just over 73% completion rate and a quarterback rating of 115 here this season. So if the Dolphins can get the better of those two matchups, I feel really good about them winning. I think two is going to come back and I think he's going to have a good game somewhere around 260 yards, two touchdowns. Hopefully he doesn't throw any interceptions defensively. I think James, you know, James Robinson will have some success on the ground, but the dolphins are able to hold tight. I'm going to go 26, 20 dolphins. Yeah. That score wouldn't surprise me. 26, 20 dolphins again, you know, the Jazz offense does have momentum. It's just their defense I'm worried about. So I could see a scenario where the Dolphins score 30 points against them. You know, I wouldn't rule that out. But, you know, I think, like, for me, it'll be a matter of, uh, you know, we. I guess we can assume two is going to play. You never know with injuries, though. But with, with the situation, you would think that he would play. But I, I think that the key probably will be, uh, just to keep Tua out of, you know, harm's way. And I wrote about this, just keeping him out of harm's way because he's fresh off of an injury, a rib injury at that. And uh, that being said, if they do that and kind of let him stick in the pocket, like that's those are the guys that the Jaguars have kind of struggled against is the pocket presence, uh, the guys with good pocket presence. So if he does that and, you know, he can link up with Waddle a few times and um, who is it, Gasecki? Is Gasecki available for this game? Yeah, Gasicki is. It doesn't seem like he is because the Dolphins haven't gotten him involved until the third quarter for a couple of these games here. They've come out trying to run the ball. Gasicki's not much of a blocker, so they've come out with Durham Smythe and Adam Shaheen instead of Gasicki, which is a huge mistake. It's a, it's a, it's a laughable mistake, really, because Mike Gasicki was fourth in the NFL in receiving yards last year among tight ends behind Darren Waller, Travis Kelsey, and one other guy I'm forgetting because um, – Kittle was hurt, but yeah, he, he's a big part of the matchups. Uh, and especially if Devonte Parker doesn't play. Yeah. I mean, Gesicki and Waddle and miles Gaskin are really the three weapons offensively in the passing game that the Jaguars have to look out for also too. Yeah. I mean, another thing I'm concerned about is it, I watched the entire NFL. So I've watched the Jaguars last couple of games here. It seems like Lawrence is getting better and better and better. He came out and threw three interceptions in his first game. He's dialed that back. He's learning. I, you know, I, they almost had that win against the Bengals. My fear is that the Jaguars come out against the struggling Dolphins defense and, and put up 30 points because it's, it's Trevor Lawrence's breakout game in London. Yeah. I think they could ride the wave. Um, I'm, I just kind of, I'm kind of concerned with, this is such a, a new revamped Jaguars team. A lot of the guys that were going to London in the past aren't there anymore. So this is kind of new for some of these guys, not James Robinson necessarily. He, uh, no, no. Yeah. He didn't, he didn't go because they didn't have the London game last year. So a lot of these guys are just new to that trip, you know, and um, 
a lot of these veterans that they got in free agency have never been to London. So that's concerning. Uh, but had it been, you know, like more along the lines of last year's Jaguars, maybe, you know, I feel a little bit uh, more confident. But um, I mean, nonetheless, I still took the Jags in this one and a, a, a rare decision for me to take them. But um, we'll see. And hopefully, like you said, well, for us, hopefully they come out firing in London. But, you know, I guess it's a time we'll tell things. So, Brian, man, we appreciate you coming on. And before you leave, man, of course, man, we want to let you plug all your handles and give out any insight you want to give out about how we can uh, listen to you and uh, on the fan side. Sure. So uh, you can fi- uh, follow me at Brian Cat NFL on Twitter and then as far as our our podcast, it's the On the Finside podcast here. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, our YouTube channels, our big one. Uh, we're part of the fan-sided network and finfanatic.com. And yeah, we do we try to do an opponent preview every week like this. And thank you again for being on our show. We also do, Paul and I do a more in-depth preview on Saturday morning and a late night recap on Sunday and then we really get into the NFL draft. We do two or three shows a week during draft time and free agency. So, yeah, if you ever need any Dolphins insight, you know, I'd be happy to jump back on with you. Yeah, shout outs to Paul. Appreciate uh, the work that he put in today with helping um, us get uh, our episode earlier recorded as well. So, uh, yeah, and, and also congratulations uh, because since our last meeting, you guys have joined the Fan Side Network. I remember you tweeting that you had good news to put out. So congratulations on that. Good to see you guys uh, just progressing. Thank you. uh, Yeah, man, is it good to talk to you again, man? Like I said, man, this is one of those link-ups that goes way back. And um, as long as I'm in the game, you know, we'll be reaching out to you all and and talking uh, Jags and and, and Miami Dolphins. So we appreciate you coming on. And, um, yeah, uh, we'll we'll see what the result of the game holds. And uh, maybe, you know, maybe even link up after the game and and talk about that. But – um. So that being said, everybody, this is the Behind Enemy Lines edition against the Miami Dolphins, the international edition. And uh, if you all uh, also look in the bio, we'll have his information in there as well. So, um, Brian, we appreciate you coming on and you have a good day. Thanks, you too. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that discussion with Kat from On the Fin Side. Really, really great analysis, as always, from him. We love working with him and and catching up with not only the Miami Dolphins, but also Kat. So, Jay, this is, you know, one of those games, of course, in London, where, of course, we've seen the team perform well. But this is Trevor Lawrence's first trip over there. And, you know, of course, we didn't go there last season because of the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see how this thing goes and both teams coming off pretty lopsided losses the Dolphins more so than us which is kind of crazy to think about but you know we'll see how this whole thing pans out over in London the good news is we get our day done and over with out of the way and you guys can enjoy your Sunday so hopefully that's the case but Jay is there anything else that you want to let our listeners know that they can look forward to not only here in the podcast but of course over on the wire no man you know pretty much you know it's the same thing routinely upset for like Phil said, we're going to have to get up early in the morning and hell, we might be posting. Now I think about it. If the game is at 930, we'll be posting stuff at like three o'clock in the morning <laughs> on Sunday. Oh, my God, that's that's going to be rough. But yeah, man, like we'll have, of course, you know, just written forms of information on uh, what's going on on the Miami Dolphins and watching the injury report because we got some injuries, some key injuries going on there. 
course, Brandon Linder went on IR today. Uh, they made a signing in his place. It's escaping my name or my mind right now who they signed, but they signed the offensive lineman. Rashawn Coward. Rashawn Coward. There you go. Uh, that's what we keep feeling around for is to <laughs> keep me straight. But, uh, yeah, we signed Coward and, um, you know, some more signings could be coming, you know, like depending on how they're looking at linebacker. Two guys got injured there, Miles Jack and who was the other one? His his backup, one of his backups got injured too. That's escaping my mind right now as well. Uh, Dakota Allen, that's who it was. So, yeah, so, you know, we got to watch out and see what's going on there because uh, the Jaguars might not be all that healthy going into – I mean, like, they'll be relatively healthy, but they lost a few key starters is what I would say. And also, again, you know, we'll have behind enemy lines in a written form, all that for the Miami Dolphins. Uh, So stay tuned and, uh, you know, check out the Jaguars Wire and um, our Twitter handles for any updates. Yep, and then, of course, just some other small transactions that happened. The Jags also signed Kareth White Jr., Jared Hawker and Josh Imadabebe to the practice squad and then releasing Austin Pleasant's Wendell Smallwood, who was barely here for a cup of coffee, and wide receiver Devin Smith from the practice squad. And then the last thing I do want to bring up here, Jay, is the poll we put out earlier in the week. Actually, I think it was Sunday afternoon. And the poll was sitting at 0-5. How many wins do you think the Jaguars will finish with this year? We got 105 votes. Thank you guys all so much for any of you that are listening that participated. Zero wins had 14%, one win had 18%, two wins at 40%, four zero, and three or more with 28%. So, you know, some of you are still relatively optimistic. The good thing about having 105 votes is we pretty much know exactly how many of you voted for each thing. So, Jay, which one did you vote for? I, unfortunately, I will admit I voted for one. <laughs> I think I might have went with two. Yeah, but I mean, like like we talked about, you know, and I don't want to get long-winded here. We talked about earlier, I kind of mentioned it, you know, the whole zero win thing. I don't, I mean, like, of course we can't have that conversation now, but it's just hard to do regardless of how bad you are. Like, <laughs> remember that Jets team we were talking about where they were playing cover mm-hmm. zero on in the last, you know, like in Hail Mary situations and stuff like that, bro. And, and the thing about going, getting zero is that it's never about the team that's heading towards zero losses. It's always more so about catching another team on the wrong day. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of one of those variables that's really out of the control of the team that's nearing zero or whatever wins. But more so like, you know, like you might catch a team banged up. You might catch a team slipping. And with 17 games, there's a lot of chances for you to catch somebody slipping on a given day. And this this Jaguars team has been competitive at times, so it's hard to see them going winless. One or two wins is probably what you can look at with this Urban Meyer coach team. Yeah, and I will admit my vote for one was done emotionally. It was right after the loss. And if I had to go back and re-vote, I'd probably go with two. But yeah, we'll see, of course, how this whole thing pans out. But again, as a reminder, thank you all so much for listening to Believe in the Jaguars. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcast, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. If you do find yourself listening on your Apple device, please go give us a five-star review. That is one of the best ways you can support the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at Believe in Jags Pod. You can find myself at Phil the Filipino, F-I-L-I-P-I-N-O, and Jay is over at SportsGrind underscore Don. Again, shout out to Kat from On the Fin Side for joining us here this week. This has been Believe in the Jaguars presented by Bet Online. Don't forget to believe in the Jaguars, but more importantly, believe in yourselves, and we will see For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, 
and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.